You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15 to the end of the book. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now... Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and as we have just read, we come now to our final sermon in this great and glorious history of redemption. Today marks the 60th occasion that we have visited this book on Sunday mornings. That means all of us together have read through all 1,553 verses of this inspired narrative. You all have endured roughly 45 hours of preaching through the book of Genesis. Many of us have gathered in small groups for two and a half years discussing insights of this text, countless hours and questions. We began our time in Genesis on January 19th, 2020. And in many ways, the Lord has used the book of Genesis to stabilize our church. It has felt at times, as one of your pastors, it felt at times that Genesis was just a spine for us. It kept us together through an unprecedented pandemic, 
cultural transitions and new norms and all kinds of things that we've had to learn as a culture these last two and a half years. But Genesis has remained a grounding for us. It has grounded us in the truth. In fact, we said at the beginning of this series two and a half years ago that one of the reasons we're going through Genesis is we're asking the Lord to ground us in the truth. It's not a new thing that truth has been under assault. Truth has been under assault since the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, with the serpent and Adam and Eve. But we said at the beginning of this series that the pace at which truth is under assault in this modern era is unprecedented. We said that in January of 2020. We, we had no clue what was coming in March of 2020. The assault on truth, what is real? I found myself multiple times these last two and a half years saying, what is real? What is true? What is reality? And in so many ways, Genesis has grounded us in truth. Furthermore, through every chapter of this book, every chapter of this book, God has assured his covenant people, the church, that he has not and will never waver on all of his promises. Over and over again, like a faucet, Genesis has turned this on, that God has never and will never waver in all of his promises to create and sustain a people for himself. From the fall in the garden to God's covenant with Abraham, from the tearing down of the Tower of Babel to the raising up of Joseph in Egypt, God has been on mission to save a people to himself. Genesis has also showed us that God is not distant or disinterested in the affairs of creation. That theology is a heresy that God sort of created the world, wound it up, and is now disinterested and distant. Any reading of Genesis could not come away with the conclusion that God is disinterested in his creation. No, in fact, God is meticulously involved in the details of his creation. He moves kings and kingdoms. He moves water. He moves in all of the details for the salvation of his people and for the glory of his great name. Every Toledot, one of my personal goals is that you use the word Toledot in a common conversation outside of here. One time, what's your family Toledot? Every Toledo, every generational marker, every genealogy, every list of names that we read throughout this narrative serves to show how detailed and particular God is on his mission, again, to save sinners from the consequences of their rebellion against him. Genesis has shown us, in short, a God who is unwavering in his mission to save those who are his. Now in our text this morning, this unwavering mission of God comes to the surface in a way that if you are listening, has the potential, the power, I believe, to change your life and the way you view every circumstance that comes your way. And this is not an overstatement. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, for me, for your preacher, 
has utterly changed my life. And speaking of a, a true north, a, a way to gather myself, Genesis 50 verse 20 has been that for me and countless others. This verse is explosive in its implications. And so Genesis ends in a fitting way to remind us of God's unflinching resolve to carry out his promises for his people. But before we get to that great statement in verse 20, something happens with Joseph's brothers. Following the funeral of their father, fear comes over them. So the first movement in this short section in Genesis 50, this first movement I've entitled Fear and Forgiveness. And it starts there again in verse 15. Verse 15 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back vengeance for all the evil that we did to him. Now, anybody that's been to a funeral knows that a funeral can have a, a disorienting effect, an unsettling effect in one's life. For Joseph's brothers, following the funeral of their father, sudden fear came over their hearts and minds. And they began thinking to themselves, what if, what if the mercy and kindness that Joseph has shown us all of these years has only been to appease our father? What if Joseph was actually seething in his heart because of the betrayal, our betrayal of him all those years ago? What if the weeping was an act? What if all the meals and the kindness and the land was all to prepare us to be blindsided by his wrath? After all, Joseph commands the armies of Egypt and so fearful of this prospect, they send an intermediary. You know how fearful they are. They're not going to go into his quarters. They're gripped with fear. And so they, they send a messenger, someone to go between to deliver an official plea for mercy. And look at verse 16 and following. So they, that is Joseph's brothers, sent a message to Joseph saying, your father, now notice, your father, he doesn't say our father. They want to they play on this a bit. Your father, you know the one that you love and adore and respect? That one, your father gave this command before he died. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now the big question is whether or not Jacob actually said this. We have no record of this in, in Genesis. It is possible that Jacob did say this to the brothers. It's likely, this is exactly the, his heart. Jacob would want the brothers to be reconciled totally and completely. But it's more likely than not that the brothers made it up. Out of fear, we do foolish and sinful things. 
And so it's likely that they made it up in order to draw out of Joseph a compassion toward them because this was the wish of his dying father. Whatever the case, though, their repentance has shown to be genuine, hasn't it, over the years? They have changed. They have felt godly grief and godly sorrow over their sin. They have received forgiveness and mercy from God. They have changed directions, which is what repentance means, to change your mind and your direction. They have repented. But one thing these brothers have failed to do until now is to go directly, although with an intermediary, but to go directly to Joseph and ask for forgiveness. They have yet to do that. And twice in this text, they ask for forgiveness. And all of this, as you read on, is too much for Joseph. We know Joseph as, a, as someone who is familiar with weeping. He's overcome again with emotion. And he weeps at the end of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He, he couldn't believe that all of these years have passed by. So much fellowship, so much rekindling the relationship of their boyhood, all of these years, and you would still doubt that I have forgiven you. And Joseph is overcome with emotion. And his brothers, verse 18, also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, although the brothers initially out of fear send a messenger, an intermediary, to ask for forgiveness from Joseph, there is an important principle for all of us to learn at this point in the story. And that is, when you have sinned against someone, when you have wounded them with your words or with your actions, it is necessary to go to that person and ask them for forgiveness. It is necessary. In fact, it is a fruit of true repentance that you are willing not only to go to the Lord in the privacy of your home or in your prayer closet and say, oh God, forgive me for the sin I've done against this person or this person, but to go to that person and say, I have wounded you. I have hurt you because of my sin and my rebellion and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And this is that final and necessary step for reconciliation when that other brother and sister extends that forgiveness. I am going to give ahead something you don't deserve because I have been forgiven much. So this is an important principle in full reconciliation to ask for forgiveness from the offended party. And so the brothers take their final step toward full reconciliation between them and Joseph. Now, Joseph's response is where that explosive doctrinal statement comes. What Joseph says next, I hope, will be a deep comfort for you as it is to me. And this is our second movement, the purposes of God. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear. A second invitation to not fear. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I want us to notice this morning, in our brief moments in this text, I want us to notice that Joseph doesn't merely comfort them with his kind feelings or his kind words. Although he has kind feelings and he shares comforting words with them, but that's not the basis of why they should not fear. No, according to Joseph, the reason they should not fear, listen, the reason they should not fear and they should be comforted is because of the role that God has played in all of it. And the role that God played, according to Joseph, was not a reactive role, but instead a proactive role. Notice again in verse 20 that Joseph doesn't say, he does not say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. He doesn't say that. That's what you would expect him to say. You meant evil, but God used it for good. No, instead, Joseph says, you meant evil, God meant good. The same word meant in the Hebrew is the same, hashav, it's a, it's a hidden motivation. Another way to translate it is plotted. You plotted evil. God plotted good. So then in Joseph's theology, listen. In Joseph's theology, he does not have a God who is merely reacting or merely responding to the events in the world and then turning them to his good purposes. No, in Joseph's theology, God is always in the driver's seat. In Joseph's theology, God is not on his heels. And although God is never the author or purveyor of evil, he is never the author or the purveyor of evil. Joseph clearly lays the blame for evil at the feet of the brothers. You meant evil, guilty. So although God is not the author of evil, as one author writes, God does overrule the plans of the wicked to achieve his own purposes. He overrules the plans of the wicked. He incorporates it into his own purposes. So in Joseph's mind, God is not up in heaven making lemonade out of lemons. Oh, this is bad. Oh, this is bad. Oh, this is bad. How can I sweeten it and make it good? That's not what's going on in Joseph's theology. Instead, God is proactively fulfilling his own purposes and he is so sovereign that he will also incorporate the wicked plans of sinners to achieve his perfect ends. And somehow, mysteriously, never being the author of evil. He's in the driver's seat. 
Joseph believed this with all his heart. Do you remember when he first met his brothers, he first disclosed that it was him, I'm Joseph. Do you remember what he said? We should have it on the screen, but if not, just listen to what Joseph says in Genesis 45, verses seven and eight. Joseph says, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Then Joseph says in verse eight, just in case we miss it, just in case the brothers miss it, so it was not you who sent me here. (laughs) Wait, it was the brothers that sold him into slavery, which got Joseph to Egypt. Not ultimately. In Joseph's theology, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land. Do you see what Joseph is doing to comfort his brothers? He's giving them a view of God that is massive and big and non-reactive but proactive to give them purpose and hope in the most scary of circumstances. Joseph is saying, yes, yours were evil intentions to harm me, but that does not put you in the driver's seat of my life. And then he says, I'm not in the place of God. And you're not in the place of God. We don't have that place. But we do have a God who is there And all of his hidden motivations are always good. God has never had an untoward evil or wicked thought toward you. And it may feel that way through some circumstances in life. And as your pastor, I know I haven't gone through half of the suffering many of you have. But the scriptures are square on this. All of God's hidden motivations, all of his purposes behind the events of your life are for your good. Full stop. So Joseph says, it wasn't you who sent me here, it was God. Because he's good. And that's consoling Joseph so he doesn't just rip off in revenge. And he means for it to console his brothers. God's in the driver's seat, not your evil, not your intentions. God is. Beloved, what, what, what Genesis 50 presents for us is a way to view the world. And this way that I think Genesis is clearly teaching us is is what we call theocentric, not we, like I'm a part of scholarship. Scholars call it a theocentric view, meaning a God-centered view of everything versus an anthropocentric view, a man-centered view of everything. This is lenses through which we view all of life, the good, the bad, the ugly. God is in the driver's seat and his intentions are good, always. And his purposes are clean and pure, always. 
He's not making lemonade out of lemons. He's not on his heels wondering how this thing's going to turn out. He proactively moves, even through human wickedness, to achieve his perfect and good ends. As we close this point, the clearest example of this is actually not in Joseph's life. The clearest example is in the better Joseph, Christ himself, and in his crucifixion. Listen to Peter as he preaches. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple of lines from his sermon. But this is what Peter says. He says in verse 27 of Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. To do what? Peter says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. (laughs) Herod, Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles, all are guilty of the greatest miscarriage in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the only innocent man who has ever walked the planet, All of them were gathered together to do this great injustice, and they are guilty. Yet, all of them were playing right into the sovereign plan of God to bring about the greatest good the world had ever known. Forgiveness of sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the death of Christ, God was not simply making something good out of something bad. No, in the death of Christ, he was fulfilling his own purposes, which he ordained before the foundations of the world were ever laid. So Joseph, back to our story, could look back and see the hand of God in all of his life and say, you meant evil against me, but God meant good. So the question is, before we move on, what about you this morning? Are you in a season where you are right now witnessing the good purposes of God at the other end of a hard and confusing season? A brother pastor of ours who actually preached here during my sabbatical last year, I remember having a conversation with him in the middle of the pandemic. And I was like, brother, how are you doing? And he's saying, he said, I am just coming to grips with the fact that God is using this pandemic to purify my soul, and I'm grateful. When he said that, I was, I was stung with conviction because I had not come to that conclusion yet. I was still trying to put all the pieces together, figure it all out. Where are you at this morning? Are you seeing his good purposes? Or are you right in the middle of a hard and confusing season? And you can't yet make sense of God's good purposes in any of it. Well, I pray that Joseph's witness of God's hand in his own life will bring deep comfort to you this morning and will change the way you view everything. God is in the driver's seat and all of his purposes are 
good. Our final scene now comes after hearing that Joseph lived to the blessed age of 110. He was able to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And so verse 24 to the end says this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis opens with humanity in a garden. And Genesis closes with Joseph in a coffin. How far had humanity drifted from that garden of God? From the garden of Eden to a coffin in Egypt. But even though God's people had drifted from the garden of God, they had not been far from the God of the garden because God had promised to be with his people. He was to be with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with his covenant nation, Israel. He would not depart from them. He would be near to them. And so though his people are far from the garden of God, they are not far from the God of the garden. And in some ways, as I think of it, Genesis comes to an anticlimactic ending, right? There's no great crescendo of returning back to the promised land. There's a whole lot of loose ends. All of the main patriarchs are gone. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now the leader of the 12 brothers, Joseph, is in a, is in a coffin mummified in Egypt. The they who embalmed him is most likely the Egyptians. He is a celebrity. He is royalty. They embalmed him, put him in an Egyptian coffin, and put him in the center of the city where Egyptian would, Egyptians would worship him. I mean, that's just not the way you expect this Jewish text to end. Yet, before he dies, Joseph reminds the brothers that Egypt is not home. This is not home. In fact, he makes them promise that when you are delivered from this place, you'll take my bones with you. I don't even want my bones here. This is not home. Before he makes them swear to that, he says in verse 24 that God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'm not sure how that landed on the family, but that must have felt a little unsettling. Goshen has been good to us. Our bellies are full. Our children are being born. What do you mean we're going to come out of this place again? 
But in the very next book, the book of Exodus, we learn that the Pharaoh that knew Joseph dies. And a new Pharaoh rises to power and he did not know Joseph. And things turn from very good to very bad for the children of Israel. And so this promise by Joseph right before he dies was a reminder that Egypt is not home. And who will bring you up out of this place? God will bring you up out of this place. And where will he take you? To the place he swore to Abraham, to the place he swore to Isaac, and to the place he swore to Jacob. And so Genesis ends really in the same way the entire Old Testament ends, with waiting. Waiting for deliverance. Waiting for the fulfillment of promise. Hoping that God will continue to be what he always has been. As Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, the Old Testament ends with the expectation of the Messiah who when he came by grace led his people in a second exodus from the bondage of this world. And as sure as God preserved and protected his covenant people throughout the Genesis narrative, we can rest assured that God remains unwavering in all of his promises. That word meant in verse 20. As I was digging into it, it's a very interesting word. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And as I said, it has this sort of idea of hiddenness in the Hebrew. You devised a plan. It wasn't seen at first. You hid it from our father. You lied to him. You devised evil. But God devised good. There's a hiddenness to the planning of God. And of course, you and I, that resonates. Sometimes we don't see all of God's motivations and intentions and purposes in all of life's circumstances. But one thing is absolutely remarkable when we look to the turn from the old covenant to the new with the coming of Jesus Christ. You'll notice throughout the, old, the New Testament epistles, Paul and others will say, the mystery the hiddenness of God's purposes in Christ is now revealed. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God's purpose and motivations for your life and for mine. So that when we, beloved, are grasping for meaning and purpose and we just can't see his hand at work, we're tracing his heart, but we can't see his hand. The greatest place to go is to the cross of Christ where all of God's motivations for love and good are fully revealed. They are not hidden. They're on a Roman cross in human history so that you and I in the deepest of moments would look at a Roman cross 2,000 year, years ago and say, God is good. And the cross declares it. God is victorious and the resurrection declares it. So whatever is happening in this circumstance, no matter how dark and bizarre it gets, God's motivations are no longer hidden. Christ Jesus is the full explanation of God's good purposes for you and me. He loves you with a never-ending love. So I pray that Genesis has built in us more trust 
in this God who remains unwavering in all of his promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we can't trace your hand, help us, Lord, to trace your heart and help us to look to Jesus Christ, the full revelation of all of your motivations toward us. Thank you for this time in Genesis. Thank you for the work that you have done. Thank you for the work that you've begun. And thank you for the work that you will continue to do. In Jesus' good name, amen.